you'd like to follow along, I'm going to read from the 17th chapter of the book of 1 Samuel, a story that uh, probably everyone here knows as we look at the life of David, second only to Christ, the, most, uh, the man with the most written about him in Scripture. It takes 66 chapters to tell David's story, uh, second only to Christ. Uh, he establishes the great city of Jerusalem and inhabitants. He, and inhabitants, he establishes the holy city of Jerusalem. And uh, uh, David did so many significant things, and he did so many wrong things. And yet the Bible gives him a distinction. No man in Scripture, or no person in Scripture receives. The Bible said that David had a, was a man who had a heart after God, after God's heart. I don't know about you, but I want to be... I want to live in such a way that God could look at me and say his heart was always right. The center of his being, the center of his, the center of his actions and affections, the center of his motives, and all, all of that was, for the most part, after me. And so we look at David these few weeks and see what we might glean from his life that would help us to be better men and women to serve God. Today, the second uh, Sunday of our study, we focus on uh, chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. The whole chapter of seven, the whole 17th chapter really is the story, but that's probably too much to read. So I would just skip down and begin reading with verse 41, 41 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Meanwhile, the Philistine, that being Goliath, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. And Goliath said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine Goliath cursed David by his own gods. Come here, he said, and I will give your flesh, your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to this Philistine, You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. By the way, David didn't have a sword if you, if you follow the story. God will strike you down and I will cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran over and stood over him. He took a hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from his scabbard. And after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And then I'll add, uh, continue reading just a little bit. When the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Well, I don't remember a lot of uh, teachers in my public school education. I remember my first grade teacher... And my second grade teacher, there's something so kind and special about career. First and second grade teachers, kindergarten teachers, they are, I believe, some of the nicest people on earth. I remember their names, but I don't remember anybody else until the fourth grade. And I remember my fourth grade teacher, Miss Johnson. 
because I thought she was mean. <laughs> Actually, she was mean. And I didn't, I, at, least in a, at least to a 10-year-old, kind of gruff, kind of unhappy. I deemed her to be just an unhappy person, period. And I don't know why she took it out on me, but I thought that Miss Johnson didn't like me very much. And uh, uh, that continued through the year. And maybe that thought continues to today, but that's not the story to talk about. I've told part of this before. I was not a very good student up to at least the fourth grade. I could get the answers right, but I, I struggled with the whole process. I, I, never, I, never understood, uh, uh, I never understood the process of showing your work in long division and mathematics. I could always get the answer, almost always get the answer, but I couldn't really show how it was done. I never understood uh, uh, how to diagram a sentence and really never really understood why anybody would want to do that. Uh, as you can probably tell by my speech and all those kinds of things. And uh, Miss Johnson would get so, so angry with me. Parent conferences would come in. She would, she would give me bad grades. She would give me poor grades for, for uh, assignments when I had gotten the answers right because I couldn't show my work in mathematics. And that was very frustrating to her, and it was uh, quite uh, surprising to me as a, as a 10-year-old boy because I thought we were after the right answer, but... She continued to downgrade me and because I could not show my work. And time after time, the folks would say, you know, have you ever showed him how to do this? And she would say, we'd go over it all the time and, and we'd do the whole thing. And everybody was frustrated. But towards the end of that year, uh, things began to happen that gave an answer to all of that. It was our time in the spring of the year in the fourth grade when the school nurse came by. And she had a, by today's standards, a very rudimentary process. She kind of examined every kid. She, had a, she would listen to our hearing with a tuning fork. Everybody remember the old tuning forks? And you would stand in front of her, and then you would turn your back. And when she would hit that tuning fork at a certain spot, you would, you would speak if you had heard it. And she tested our reflexes, a little odd-shaped hammer, a triangle head that was coated in rubber. And she would hit you at your knee, and your foot would, uh, and, your, and your leg would pop up. I thought that was so strange. I thought that was pretty neat, though. I was fascinated with it. But I was a little bit unleary of a person hitting me with a hammer for any reason. And then she tested our sight, our vision. I well remember the day when it came to my turn, and I passed, uh, seemed to pass on the, on the hearing test, the tuning fork. I did all right there. I certainly did all right on reflexes. And she said to me, young man, now, I want you to read the smallest letter of the alphabet you can see. And I said, yes, ma'am, and stood there. Some of you know the story. She said it again with a little more definitiveness in her voice, and I said, yes, ma'am, I will. And nothing happened. The third time she said it was with quite a bit of disdain. And I realized that I was not long for this world. I was headed to the principal's office, and I finally had the courage to say to her, as soon as you show me a letter, I'll be happy to tell you what the smallest one I can see. And she just exploded in anger for a moment. And then she said to me, very slowly walked toward me. When I got about, when I got about four foot from her, I was shocked to see she was holding a, a cardboard deal with it with a, Letters of the alphabet up all the time. She called Miss Johnson over. Miss Johnson was teaching. She stopped her from teaching and said, come here, I want to talk to you. Miss Johnson seemed to be especially irritated that she was disrupted from her routine for me. And, Ms. and the, the nurse said, I want you to watch this. And I went back to my spot and she told me that. I walked forward and we went repeated that. And she said to Miss Johnson, this boy is almost blind. He can't see the chart, even that I'm holding the chart. 
And she actually said to Miss Johnson, it's the spring of the year. This boy's been in your class the whole year, and you don't know that he can't see? Where does he sit? Well, he, she had Miss Johnson on the ropes by that time. Miss Johnson said, we said alphabetically, the W's are in the back of the room. And she said, why do you have this boy sitting in the back of the room? He can't see the front. He can't see the chalkboard. He can't see clearly three people in front of him. Miss Johnson, that's the problem. You're trying to explain something in by the visual demonstration on the chalkboard, and this boy can't see it. Well, a note went home to my parents, and uh, the next day an appointment was scheduled with the eye doctor. Uh, I would tell you that we didn't have optometrists in our town in those days. We really did. We just called them eye doctors, and I went to the eye doctor, and he quickly confirmed that I had a pretty significant vision problem. And he began to put this, uh, this contraption on my face and began to dial these little things. And I, I could see like I'd never seen before. And he finally said the result, this, this uh, boy needs glasses. And I thought that was the most unmanly thing I could, a skinny little 10-year-old kid could ever do would be to wear glasses. I was so depressed. He, I remember the name of the, glass, of the frames I picked out. He told me they were called rawhide as if a manly name would help me feel better about myself and about my glasses. But he was wrong. It took a week to get glasses in those days. I do remember when we went to back and had them fitted in, uh, to my head. He said, stand up and look across the street. And I was shocked to see it across the street. There were people walking on the sidewalk. And there were stores over there and people coming and going in cars. I couldn't see hardly anything. In fact, when I got older, I would read my chart that says, this patient cannot distinguish three fingers at seven feet. Almost blind. I would get, I was begin wearing glasses in the fourth grade and I would wear them, I would get a stronger pair of lenses every year for the rest of my public school education. Long before there were, there were all these synthetic lenses and all these kind of things, I would get real glass. Boy, they were thick by the time I got to high school. In the sixth grade, the doctor said I needed bifocals. Not fancy, no line, can't see, invisible bifocals. It was a very distinct line when, when the lens, when the uh, glasses, uh, the lens on top was one strength and the lens on the bottom was another strength. Myself and the oldest teacher in the school were the only ones that had bifocals as a sixth grader. That was the year I got braces and I like to say I learned very quickly that braces and bifocals do not equal cool in any age. Uh, and I got all that fixed and that's a whole different story. But I was un unable to see. I want to remind you this morning that what we choose to see usually makes a difference in how we respond. In the, in the grand scheme of life, what we choose to see literally and figuratively, what we choose to set our sights on literally and figuratively, usually is a deciding and determining factor as to what God is able to do in our life and what we are able to do in response to God. And certainly that is a story, and that is the fact of the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel. When we left David last week, he had just been anointed by the great prophet Samuel, who under the direction of God had journeyed to Bethlehem and a little nowhere town and, and uh, to see the sons of Jesse. And Jesse didn't even invite all of his sons to the big religious going on that was happening. But Jesse paraded his sons in one at a time, the oldest being the first one. And Samuel thinking, surely the oldest is God's chosen and God's anointing and God's anointed one. And Samuel stood up to, to anoint the oldest and God said, it's not him. They would go through that two more times and God would say to Samuel, sit down. He's not the one. The Lord said something significant we need to never forget. God said in the 16th chapter of Sam, 1 Samuel, you look at the outward, you look at, at the outward facts but I look at the inward condition, and I see something that you will never see. 
Send the next one in. All seven of them went down the runway as if they're on a Miss America runway and pirouetted at the end. And the Lord said, not any of them. Finally, inquiring about to Jesse, don't you have any other sons? You're supposed to bring all your sons here. He said, oh, there's the run of the family. You remember, there's the run of the family. He's out to watching the sheep, and they wouldn't got him, wouldn't sit down, wouldn't begin the all-you-can-eat, uh, or wouldn't begin the church dinner until David came in. When he, when he walked into the room, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samuel and, and said, Arise and anoint him. He is the one I have chosen to be king of Israel. Samuel did that to the shock of his brothers and his father, no doubt. And ever. The most shocking thing is when they got through with that service, everybody went home. And, and Samuel went back to his town. Uh, the brothers seemed to go back to their work. Jesse seemed to go back to his normal duties. And David went back to the pasture because it wasn't quite God's time to bring him forward yet. But he must have been faithful. Because King Saul was the first choice of, uh, of the king of Israel because of his inability to obey God and stay true to God and follow God. God had, had removed his anointing from him. That's a whole different story that we're not going to talk about today. He had christened David as the next one, but Saul was still alive and still king. And Saul would go into great fits of depression, not knowing what to do. They sought to have somebody come and play soothing music. And Saul inquired and said, go find the best musician you can. And here's what one of Saul's men said. One of his servants answered and said, I know I've seen the son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. Listen to what he says about David. I've seen this. He is a brave man, a warrior, and speaks well, is a fine looking man, and the Lord was, is with him. Think about that for a moment. David had been anointed king by the most powerful man in Israel. David had been commissioned by God. The anointing oil could still be moist on his head. David was the man who, who was christened in the most significant role in the political scene of the nation of God's people, yet sent away to go to menial work outside a small town. Not angry, not upset, not disbelieving. He must have been faithful to God's calling because when Saul sought for a man to help him through his times of depression, David was the one identified, and we read it. His servant said, I have seen this man, and he is faithful, and God has with, is with him. I want to remind you folks, as we all know, life is not easy. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes it's caused by other people. Sometimes it's just the world we live in. Sometimes it's just a process that almost has no explanation to why. But God, it will enable us to be faithful in the midst of what He has called us to be, regardless of what is happening around us. Sometimes in the church, we fall apart when trouble comes. And sometimes in our lives, we, we, we doubt God and we get mad at God because things don't go as we think they ought to go. But we, our job is to be faithful to God regardless. And I'm impressed that David stayed faithful to God so much so that it was noticed by those around him. He is a man in whom has the Spirit of God is upon. Well, chapter 17 happens. Chapter 17 opens with a Philistine army doing something uh, unique. They moved into the territory of the nation of Israel, and it was clearly an act of aggression. The Bible doesn't say why that happened, chapter 17, verse 1, but Saul assembled the army of Israel who rushed out to meet them. The Bible doesn't say why the Philistines chose to enter into the nation of Israel, but it could be that they had a giant to show off. And the scene is the Philistine army occupy a hill on this side of a valley, and the army of Israel occupies uh, the other hill on the opposite side. There's a valley in the middle. That is to be the battlegrounds, and the stage is set for an all-nothing-barred, uh, no-holes-barred contest. 
when the great giant challenger of the Philistines steps out. And let me paraphrase what he says. There's no need for all of us to fight. There's no need for all of us to get bloody and hurt. Some are going to die. I, I have a challenge for you, he said. Why don't you present a man who will fight me? And the nation of the winner will be served by the nation of the loser. Let's reduce this contest down to two people. Myself and you present a man, any man you want to fight me. And, and two people are involved. And the loser becomes, the nation of the loser becomes the servants of the nation of the winner. And, uh, and Israel's army, the army of Almighty God, led by God's original choice, King Saul. You know what they did. They turned and ran and hid in their tents, the Bible says. Not able to face, not knowing what to do. In fact, the next morning, Saul would get, the, the, the Philistine army would, would, would do the same thing. They would gather on their hill. The, the giant Goliath would step out and issue a challenge, present a man to fight with me. And the army of Israel would rush to the other side. And after they saw Goliath and after they heard his words, they ran and hid in their tent. Once in the morning, once in the evening, for 40 days, they had all the appearance of, Israel had all the appearance of being big and tough and powerful and God's nation, but they cowed under a man of great size and stature. Where would it ever end? Surely God was not pleased with his people running and hiding and taking a back seat. About that time, Jesse had decided to send some food to his sons in the army, his three oldest sons in the army, since it had been so long since they had been there, and some food to his commanders, and he got David to, uh, to, to do the task. Probably about an 18-mile journey from where he was to the army site, to the battlefield, loading him down with, with cheese and, and, uh, and breads. And the Bible said David arrived in the camp just as the early morning activity was beginning. He arrived in camp just as the Philistine army rushed to their side of the valley and the giant Goliath stepped out and began to trash talk about God and, and offered a challenge for his inner man. And Israel's army went and hid again, perhaps for at least the 80th time. And something must have happened to David because he begins to say to, he begins to talk about it. And he said, what, what will happen for anybody who's able to, to challenge this giant and defeat him? And someone said, oh, the king will give him great wealth. Verse 25, the king will give him great wealth. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. And here's what I like the most about the story. He will exempt his father's family from taxes in all of Israel. Hallelujah for that. Think about that. The man who overcomes this giant, he's going to be wealthy. He's going to be the, he's going to be the king's son-in-law, and he and his family will never have to pay taxes again. That's a deal, folks. And David's brother hear him talk, hears him talking about it, and they begin to chastise him. Who did you leave those few sheep with in the pasture? You need to get out of here. You, you're conceited. You're arrogant. You need to leave. David turned to that voice. Listen to me. David turned to the criticism and began to talk to someone else. David turned his back on what his own folks were saying, the discouraging things they were saying. He turned his back upon them, went and asked another. Finally, word comes to King Saul, there's a kid out here who's talking about fighting this giant. Saul gets him, uh, uh, commands that he come to see him. It's David, the harp player, and he says to him, what's this I hear about you? You're only a boy. He's a man. He's been a fighting man all of his life. 
you're not able to go against this Philistine, you said in verse 33, and fight him. He's only, you're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. It, and it turned to me. I seized it by the hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has both killed the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the bear and the paw of the lion will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul finally said to David, go, the Lord be with you. I think that it's most amazing to me to realize that David wanted to respond not because he thought he could overcome him, but David wanted to respond because he was so infuriated at a man defying the name of Almighty God. I think it's amazing and and revealed in the story that David doesn't think he's big and tough and powerful. He's shocked that somebody's trash-talking God and no one's standing up for God. Folks, we live in a world that does not have much respect for God or the things of God, and the name of God is used flippantly as some kind of an afterthought or some kind of a moment of surprise in movies and, and songs. The name of God is spoken in a very vile way that's disrespectful to Him. When is God's people as a church going to stand up and take a stand for God and those who rally against His name? I've told you before that I try to live that way when I hear in a movie, when I hear the word of God, God's name taken in vain. I try not to watch it. I don't try to listen to music that takes God's name in vain. It's troubling to me. The church needs to take a stand for what is right and for God. And one of the keys to the success that David had in being a man after the heart of God is that he was willing to fight for the name and reputation of God Almighty. His church ought to be doing that as well. David said he would go. Saul thought it was crazy and discouraged him. David seems to turn his back on Saul's opinion. Saul finally loaded him down, David down with his armor, put his armor on him, this boy, put, his, put a head, uh, helmet on his head, gave him a sword to walk around. David tried to walk around and all this stuff and said, I can't do this. It's not me. Took it all off. You know, the story went to the, went to the stream, got five smooth stones in his bag and said it's time for somebody to take a stand for God. I want to remind you folks, when we stake our life on God, when we take a stand for God, He will not disappoint us. He will not let us down. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it will we'll take our, the best determination we have. But when we take a stand for God and we trust Him, God will come through. I read this week why some man said if David was such a big, powerful guy and had such a, a belief in God, why did he choose five stones instead of just one? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say. There's another point in Scripture, though, later on that we find that Goliath had four brothers just as big as him. Maybe David thought he might have to take on the whole bunch. By the way, 300 years earlier than this, when, when Joshua was entering the promised land, God gave him the instruction to destroy what was there. He, he, he ran the inhabitants of that area off. But three cities he spared. One of those cities was the city of Gath, the city of giants where Goliath came from. I want to tell you, it's possible that these people, these descendants of, uh, of Gath, these uh, relatives of, of, of Goliath and his mother might have been reaping terror on the people of God for years and generations and generations. 
But the battle line was drawn, and David stood out, a little boy. By the way, Goliath begins to trash talk David. You, you, you send a kid out here, a boy, do you, with a stick in his hand, a shepherd's right. You think I'm a dog? You send somebody out here with a stick that's going to, to I'm going to kill this kid and give his flesh to the birds of the air, beasts of the field. By the way, Goliath probably was somewhere about nine foot, nine and a half feet tall, nine and a half feet tall. Anybody been to see the Dallas Mavericks play lately? Anybody been down to El, Chico, El Phoenix in downtown Dallas and sees a tape on, a, on the wall that is the, is the head of one of the forwards of the Dallas Mavericks, or one of the guards, or the big tall guy, whatever you call him. Nine feet tall. He, he, had, a, he had a body armor on him that weighed 150 pounds. One man said he had the weight of an average man upon him to protect him. I never realized I was so far above average till I read that. 150 pounds. <laughs> Just a little more than that. David, uh, Goliath even had a man, a soldier who carried a shield that went before him that would indicate that, he could, that Goliath could even hide behind that. A, head, a helmet on his head. His shins and legs were covered. He was a massive man. A spear was like a weaver's beam. The shaft of his spear was like, the, well, it was like a small tree. The iron point of his, of his spear might have weighed as much as 20 pounds. A, a significant force. And here's David. Didn't have anything to fight with. Just a kid. No armor. No protection. Except that he came in the name of the Lord. Goliath said, I'm going to give your, bodies, your body to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field today. David said, I'm going to give the whole, when God gets through with you, I'm going to give the whole army of the Philistines to the birds and the beast. David said, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin and all this stuff. But I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, whom you had defied. And this day, the Lord will hand you over to me. I'm going to cut your head off. Pretty great boast for a kid that didn't even have a sword. And the whole world will know today that there is a God in Israel, for the battle is the Lord's. I think of the times in my life I've forgotten that statement. The battle is the Lord's. I've been trying to fight the giants myself. I've been trying to overcome what plagues me. I've been trying to do it in my own strength instead of surrendering my life to God and surrendering my giant to God and asking God to direct me in ways that I can be successful to overcome what life and the enemy is bringing me. We know the story. The battle line is drawn. Goliath begins to walk toward David with great anger in his eyes, almost laughing perhaps at the sight of this kid on the other side. I think it's interesting that David runs at Goliath and takes a rock out of his bag, puts it in his sling. By the way, I, I, one archaeologist said in this day and time, the rocks that were in this area were, were, were smooth and they were round and they might be as uh, the size of a tennis ball or even a baseball. It was not just a little pebble probably, although God could have used that. But when, David's, uh, when David uh, put that rock in there and wound up his sling, I don't know how to describe the projectile. I don't know if you shoot it or if you sling it or if you slung it or if you fling it. When it left David's hand, God put his put his GPS on that thing and it hit Goliath and probably the only unprotected part of his body that was right between his eyes and the forehead and the Bible said the stone just didn't hit him it sunk into his head and when the great giant Goliath fell 
the valley, I bet, was quiet as everything. You could have heard a pin drop, as they say. And David ran over to Goliath and pulled his sword out and cut his head off. And the whole world knows that there is a God, a powerful God, in the land of Israel. And, of course, the Philistine army that had been trash-talking for 40 days ran as fast as they could the other direction. And the army of Israel that seemed so powerless to face them began to chase them, and it was an incredible battle. One man has said David went from being in the morning a deliverer of groceries to becoming a national hero all in one day because he trusted God to help him overcome his giant. How about for us? What do we do with the giants we face? They're, we all face them. One man has couched it this way, it's bills you can't pay. It's a boss you can't please. It's a grade you can't make. It's a spouse you can't, uh, you can't uh, live in harmony with. It's whiskey or pills that you can't resist. It's pornography that you can't refuse. It's a past that you can't escape and a future we can't face. How do we deal with the giants in our life? Might I remind you this morning that what we choose to see is the key to it all. The army of Israel saw Goliath, nine foot tall, nine and a half foot tall. You let that story get told by the end of 40 days. He's probably 12 foot tall in their imagination. He's large and he's big and he's a menace that, they, they, that has haunted them. Maybe his dad haunted their dads and his grandfather haunted their grandfathers. He was a big deal and they had no idea what to do with him. But when David got on the scene, David saw something no one else at this point had seen. Oh, David saw the giant. Big, tall, braggadocious, arrogant, all those kinds of things. But David saw for the first time God in the midst of it. In fact, you have to read almost the whole story of chapter 17 of the book of 1 Samuel before God's name is ever mentioned. And that's mentioned by the little kid bringing some groceries who had, been, had God's anointing on his life but sent back to menial labor but lived so faithfully and confidently with the assurance that he knew that God was directing him and helping him. He looked to past achievements to know of what God would do today. He said to Saul, I, I might be a little kid, but I'm out there with my, with my father's flocks. And one day a bear came and stole a lamb. And I chased him down and killed him and got the lamb back. And then a lion came. If God helped me with the bear and God helped me with the lion, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's going to be a problem David saw God in, his, in, in, in everything that he did. David seemed to see God in the challenges he faced. David seemed to see God in the midst of the giants that he faced. It wasn't just Goliath. Goliath is just one in a number of giants David faced. What we choose to see. And I'll tell you this morning, I am the first to see. I'm the first to so get the giant filling up my vision that I don't see anything else but that for a time. But God help us to see past him and to see the giant in the shadow of a God who is bigger and greater and able to help and rescue his own. Sometimes what we don't need is just to have our problem go away. Perhaps our greatest need is for God to give us an eye adjustment 
and to improve our vision and help us to look past what is bothering us to the point that we see a God who says, I will help you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You can stake your life on me. You can count on me. I will come through when, the, when it gets right down to it. I will deliver you. What do you set your sights on today? Perhaps is the most important thing to face. Are you just seeing the problem? Are you just seeing the addiction? Are you just seeing the things that we can't that have a hold on us that no one can see? Maybe no one can see your giant, but you know it's there. And every morning and every night, you deal with that giant. When the God of victory says, I want to give you peace and rest and victory over that, if you'll just trust me. For David, the most important part was what he saw. And then secondly, I would remind you that God's will is not always easy. We sometimes think in the church that if we find the perfect will of God, that's the right way to live, that's the perfect way to live, that's the way that God wants us to live. We seek to find God's will, but sometimes we're shocked at how hard God's will can be. I learned as a little boy quickly, honesty is the best policy. But I don't remember hearing the rest of it. Sometimes honesty is the hardest thing one will have to do. God's will is not always easy. We still get sick. We still die. We still have tragedy. We still have all kinds of things happen to us that we can't understand. We have people around us that aren't encouraging, that are discouraging, just like David did. David had his brothers, and then he had Saul, and then he had Goliath offering criticism to him. God's will is not always easy, but God will help us through everything that takes place, even when no one around us is willing to offer a great voice of comfort and encouragement. Life is hard, folks, but God's great. But remember now, this is not our final destination. This is just a passageway to get where God wants us to be. And in God's world, it is a perfect world, but we got to go through some stuff to get there. What do you see? Realize in your mind that God's will is not always easy to, to live out, or it doesn't have all the obstacles removed. And then finally, the key, for, the key for David, I think, and the key for all of us, is that, is that to serve God this way and to trust God, it, we have to be all in. It's all God or nothing. David put his life on the line for God. David risked his life. David was not going to have a second chance to do this. David had to have so much confidence in God and who God was and what God had done for him that he was willing to put his life on the line. David was all in for this deal. Somebody's dying on the battlefield this day. Whether it's David or Goliath, David had to have the assurance that somebody's going to die all in for God. You know, our problem in having God work in our lives in great and mighty ways is that we're not all in on his program. We're all in when it's convenient. We're all in when we understand it. We're all in when we believe it. We're all in when it fits with our mindset. But God calls us to surrender our lives, our will, our future to him and to be all in with his plan. And we can't expect God to be all in for us if we're not all in for Him. I talked to a person not long ago who said we had a missionary come to our church. and The missionary told incredible stories about what God had done and how they had evidenced God at work. And how they saw God's power like they had never seen before. And this person said, that's the way I want to live. I want God to do that in my life. And I was led to say to them, what, do you do, what are you willing to do for God? How are you willing to step out for God? 
You see, God's great victory came when, God, when great confidence was put on him. When people put their lives on the line for God, God does great. You can't do the same thing the same way every day, every year, every month, uh, through the generation, and expect God to do anything different. We, we fall short in realizing that God's way is all or nothing. We try to honor God with a little bit of our money, and we ask God to bless us in great ways. Saw a guy on TV not uh, a few days ago. You give him a thousand dollars, God would give you, God would give you ten times that much. Going to give you a Boaz blessing. Whatever God does for me, I, he's going to he's going to do for you. When God gives me an airplane, he'll give you an airplane. God gives you, God gives me a, a, a limousine. God's going to give you a limousine. I'd love to have an airplane, but I don't know what you do with it, or <laughs> you how you how you'd fly it, or what you how you'd pay for it. I mean, it's it's kind of a craziness. It's not about give, doing a token thing for God. It's about giving God our lives and our future and all. Lady told me this week, not of this congregation. A lady told me this week, I, I pay my ten percent tithe. But you know, the New Testament doesn't mention that, by the way. So that that's right. The New Testament doesn't say a ten percent of your income is God's. The New Testament says all of it's God's. And we honor him in certain ways with our money. We want God to lead us and guide us through great times, tribulation and trials, and yet we don't give ourselves fully to him. David's secret and David's key was that he trusted God completely with his, with his life, and he ran to him knowing that if God doesn't come through, he dies all in for God. A man after God's own heart sees the right things realizes that just because it's hard doesn't mean God's not in it. In fact, God proves His great faith to us in times of great testing. And then to be all in and all out for God is really the key. I want to be all in for God. I want to be all out for God. I want to be all for God and God alone. And I want to have a heart after God's heart. And although David is known for the story of David of overcoming Goliath in this story that we read, the, the, the success of David didn't happen in chapter 17. The success for David happened when God chose him of his own accord to anoint him with power, and David lived faithfully for God when he didn't understand what and why and where he was doing it. It's the secret of David's success is his belief is living for God. And may it be so for you and I. What is your giant that you face, and how can we successfully live for Him and let God do those things in our lives? Well, we keep connected to God. We keep connected to God's Word. We keep connecting God's voice. We pray. We seek Him every day. We keep believing God's Word. We, we live in a world that believes God, that believes in God. Do you realize that? In the United States, we live in the midst of a society that believes in God. The problem is our society does not believe God. Oh, in the church, if we would get to the point where we could believe God, and then we totally commit ourselves to Him, and God will help us overcome our giant. It's not easy. Addictions are not easy to overcome. Uh, habits that uh, are not healthy are not easy to overcome. Behaviors that are long-induced that are not of God are not easy to overcome. But if God wants to show that there's a God in Israel this day by helping David overcome his giant... He will do the same for you and I in our lives as well if we will just trust Him. Are you all in for God? Well, I feel like I ought to at least stop this and finish, stop preaching and just ask you that. God have all of you. God have your heart. God have your family. God have your future. 
whatever God wants, I'm willing to follow him. If not, I want to give you a chance to make that decision for God. I ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. We're not going to spend very long doing this. We have an altar in the Church of Nazarene. We believe the altar is a great place to pray, but it is not necessarily a saving point. But anybody here today that says, I want to take care of spiritual business, and I'm willing to walk down the aisle at this altar and let God help me as I confess to Him my sin and invite Him into my life and prove to be all out for God. Derek's going to play just a course or two for just a moment. Anybody like that today? I don't want to leave this church without praying specifically. Would you be willing to stand, take a stand for God? Come to the altar. Let me have a closing prayer with you, several others. Say, I've fallen short. I've let the giants get a hold of me. I've let the giants get the best of me. I need God to help me overcome. Anybody like that? We're going to wait about 30 seconds. I have a need today. God has spoken to me. It's a very intimate time for a congregation. We allow God to work in our lives. Oh, God, forgive me for giving less of myself to you and expecting all of you to work. God, forgive me for letting giants become more powerful in my life than you. God, forgive me for my lack of faith and my lack of trust. Anybody like that today? Well, let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for your presence in church today and for the fact that you've spoken to us. I dare say that every one of us has heard something in this, in this service and in this scriptural presentation that has spoken to directly to us. May we have enough boldness and confidence in you to step forward and to accept you in a new and different way. Lord, help us to give our lives to you. Help us to realize that you, you, don't need, you don't need all of our money. We need you. You don't really need another person to do something and to accomplish your will. We need you. Help us to realize that you don't need another church on another corner in another town. You need a church. We need you in our church. And may we strive to be faithful this week. Stay connected to you, trust you, not be overcome by what life brings us, but may we look to see you in the midst of it all, large and above all. And we give you praise and glory this morning for your great goodness to help us, even in the midst of our weakness. We ask these things in your name. Amen and amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the chance to be in your house today. We pray that the things we've seen and heard that resonate in our hearts and lives will carry with us throughout the course of this week. May we strive to believe you more and trust you and let you lead us. Give us strength for the day. Help us in our weakness. We praise you for your great goodness to us. In your name we pray and ask these things. Amen and amen. Shake hands with a few people and be dismissed.